The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We continue this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14 this morning. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's the word of the Lord for us today. Lord, your word is is good, and it's right, and it's true. Uh, Sometimes it encourages us, sometimes it challenges us, sometimes it's easy understand and it's joyful as we receive it. Other times it comes at us with more fury and more ferocity and it's harder to receive. But we pray this morning that as we study your word that by your spirit you would open our hearts to understand it and to receive it. But not just to understand it and to receive it but to respond to it. So speak to us this morning and draw us yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we began looking last week at the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 1 through 6 of of this gospel, and we got a a good snapshot of this man and who he is and what his ministry was like. He was indeed a very unique man, the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, really the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. He came uh, looking and sounding a lot like Elijah in the things that he was saying and the way that he was dressed. We talked about uh, the unique uh, diet that he was on, uh, the unique location where he did his ministry. And in every way, this, this man, John, stood out from the crowd. There was no other teacher like him in the day. There was no other teacher like him at all. He was a very unique man, and he was, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in a very unique way. And people were flocking to him to hear the message. And we were told in the early part of this chapter that he was out by the Jordan River, and that's where he was doing his ministry, away from Jerusalem. And, and his ministry was one that really surrounded uh, a, a, a thing called baptism. He was, he was 
calling people to himself, preaching to them, and calling them to respond to the message by being baptized. And his baptism was not Christian baptism, as we've seen. It was a, a unique baptism that, that symbolized a repentant heart. It was a way for Jewish people to, to recognize the futility of their ways, the futility of their, their works-based faith that they had given themselves to, and to turn away from that actively and to open their hearts to the Messiah who was on the way. And that was John's ministry and his message. It was a preparatory message. He was, he was preparing the way for Jesus who was in short order to come and to live out his life and his ministry and ultimately die on the cross. And so John's um, ministry of preparation was a ministry of preaching. It was a ministry of baptizing. And, and the message that he preached is really what we want to focus on this morning because it's an important message for us as we, uh, as God's people, prepare to gather around the Lord's table in particular. And so I, I trust that you'll, you'll listen and that you'll take this to heart this morning and search your own heart as you listen to John challenge the people who gathered to hear him preach this message. His message really centered around two issues, the issue of repentance and the issue of forgiveness of sin. Those are the things that John was talking about primarily. We saw this in verse 3 where we were told he went into the region, all the region uh, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there was this, this, this connection between baptism uh, uh, being the, the, the uh, sort of the ritual that showed a repentant heart and that repentance was a repentance that was a, a repentance of turning from sin to Christ who was to come hoping that he might forgive their sins repentance and forgiveness of sins if you go to the end of the chapter in verse 18 or toward the end of the chapter in verse 18 Luke says this so with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people if you have a New American Standard Bible it may say he preached the gospel to the people it's the same word that is translated the gospel, the good news, all throughout uh, the New Testament. It's a verbal form here. But John, John is preaching a gospel, the gospel of Jesus. It sounds a little dis different coming from John because Christ has not yet come in full. He hasn't performed his ministry. He hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't risen from the grave yet. So his gospel was a gospel of turning from sin and turning toward the Messiah who was yet to come and die for their sins. It's a little different than the gospel as we proclaim it now, where Christ has come and we know who he is and we know what he's done. We don't look forward to a Messiah who's to come. We look backwards on the cross to the cross where he died for our sins. But it's the same gospel it's the same good news. And it is good news. It's good news that sin can be forgiven. Isn't that good news? It's good news that you don't have to live with your sin. It's good news that it's not up to you to atone for your own sin. It's good news that one day you and me, you and I, we don't have to stand before the Lord and be accountable for our own sin. That's great news. That's wonderful news. And that's the good news that John was preaching to the people. You're sinful people. But you don't have to remain in your sins. There's a way to be forgiven. And the key to that is repentance. Repentance. Forgiveness is possible, and forgiveness is available to those who repent. Well, if that's the case, we need to talk about what repentance is, because I, I trust it's probably a word you don't use all that often in your life. You don't, you know, walk around your office, you know, saying, sinner repent, or 
you know, to people. I hope you don't. Um, it's not the way to make friends, I don't think. But re- repentance, what is that word? It's a, it's a churchy word that we quite often use, but maybe don't always capture the, a full understanding of it. The word as it's used in the Bible is a word that captures the whole idea to turn around and go in a different direction. To turn around and go in a different direction. Uh, it, it, it's a word that, that sort of, at its heart, begins with the mind. It, it means literally to change the mind but it doesn't capture only a change of the mind. It's a change of a mind that's followed by a change in direction. And those things, I think, in repentance are not separate. They're, they're one in the same motion. When a person repents, they, they, they make a decision in their mind to turn away from something, and they make a decision to turn towards something else. And that turning, that mental, and that action part are all wrapped up in the same thing it's all repentance it's it's turning away from one thing and turning toward another thing John's audience needed to turn from some things they needed to turn away from a religion of human works because that's what they were trapped in they needed to turn from sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors that that were in rebellion outright rebellion against God though they were coddling them and they were glorying in things they should be ashamed of And they needed to repent. They needed to turn away from that, and they needed to turn toward God. They needed to turn away from their sins. They needed to repudiate those things. They needed to denounce them. They needed to to own that God was displeased with their life and with their behavior. And they needed to actively make a choice to turn away from those things and to turn toward the Messiah who was to come. That was what the repentance that John was preaching was all about. Repentance is more than just the mind. It really encompasses about three things, at least three things. It encompasses both a mental piece where we decide to turn. It, 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 it also captures the, the, the action piece of our life where we actually do something in relation to that change of mind. That is, we change our behavior. We turn actively away from doing sinful things toward doing things that please the Lord. And it also really is a change of of affections as well. And we'll flesh that out a little more uh, as we work through this this morning. It's important for us as we think about repentance to, to make a note here that repentance is more than just regret. Repentance isn't the same thing as just regret. It's not being regretful because we're dealing with consequences of our sin. A lot of people feel regret for sin, right? Especially when we do evil things and we have to pay a price for it. There are consequences, particularly when there are immediate consequences in our life. We regret that we did those things. But regretting that we're having to live with consequences for our sin is not the same thing as repentance. Repentance is more than just regret. It's more than just remorse. It's really, it's more than just being sorry. It's, it's more than just being sorry that we've done things that are wrong. And it's more than just guilt. It's more than just a feeling of guilt because we know that we've done things and, 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 our, and our, our behavior has been exposed. There are a lot of people who are remorseful for their sin. There are a lot of people who regret the things that they've done. There are a lot of people who feel guilty because of things that they've done, sinful things in their life. But they've never repented. They've never actively turned away from those things and turned toward the Lord Jesus. Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology defines repentance this way, and I think it's a helpful definition. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. 
He captures several things in that definition that are important. It does involve sorrow for sin. It's more than just sorrow for sin, but it certainly involves a sorrow for sin. It, it, it involves looking at our own lives and, and being sorry for what we've done, a genuine remorsefulness for disobeying the Lord. But more than that, it involves a renouncing of that sin, a, a, a repudiation of it in our life, uh, an active choice to walk away from that kind of living and that kind of behaving and a sincere commitment to, to walk in obedience to Christ. Charles Spurgeon gives this definition. It shades it a little different way, but is also helpful. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated, and hate what once he loved. I like how Spurgeon captures, especially that last line, because he captures the affections part of repentance. This idea that we look at our sin and we understand the vileness of it, that the, the offense that it is to Almighty God, to the one who created us, to the one who's given us all things, to the one who made us, and to the one to whom we're all accountable. It's a recognition that it is a vile thing to sin against an Almighty God. And there's no place in our life to love sin. When we repent, we repudiate that sin. We turn away from it. We no longer embrace it and love it in our lives. It's replaced by a new affection, a love for Christ and obedience to him. Uh, uh, repentance wasn't a new concept in John's day. It had been around for some time. The Old Testament prophets spoke of repentance in very vivid terms. If, if you were to look back to Isaiah 55, verse 7, you would hear Isaiah say this. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. And the evil man is thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he'll have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. What does the wicked need to do? He needs to forsake his way. That's, a, that's another way of saying he needs to turn. To turn to the Lord. To forsake one thing and to turn toward another. Ezekiel captures the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30. And following, therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all your offenses that you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. The message of the Old Testament prophet was if you want to live, you need to repent. If you want to find forgiveness and mercy from the Lord, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin and turn toward the Lord. Of course, that is the message all throughout the New Testament as well, which is utterly consistent with the Old Testament. Jesus preached the same message in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Jesus said the following. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preached the same message as Isaiah and Ezekiel and John the Baptist. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when he's preaching the first Christian message there after the resurrection, says to the crowd, after he's told to explain to them the gospel, and they've said, what do we need to do? He says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is speaking and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to what? Say it with me. 
repent, to repent. Repentance is an essential part of conversion. It's an essential part of saving faith. To be converted, to become a Christian, to be saved, whatever language you'd like to use, comes as a result of two things. It comes as a result of repentance and faith. And two, two sides of the same coin. Uh, a person comes to the realization that they are sinners who have offended Almighty God. And they come to realize that there's no amount of human works or good works or religious activity that they can do in order to redeem themselves, to save themselves. Their only hope is to look to the cross of Jesus where he died in their place, taking the full wrath of God on their sins in their stead. Their only hope is to turn away or to repent from their sin and to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a motion that has two sides. It has one side of turning away from a life of rebellion and the other side of turning toward Christ and embracing him by faith. It's one action that has two sides. Repentance, turning away from something, and faith, turning toward and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. To be saved, a person has to have both elements. I mean, it just makes common sense. To turn toward Christ, you have to turn away from whatever you've been living for up to that point. I only make this point because there are plenty of people who still today preach a gospel that excises repentance out of the message. That will come to you and come along your path and say, listen, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be converted, really you just need to believe in Jesus. You just need to make a choice, a mental decision to believe the facts of the gospel. And by faith, believe Jesus. And that's all you need to do. Just believe the message and you'll be saved. Just believe. Just walk the aisle. Just be baptized. Just come to church. Just be better. With no mention of repentance. And that's not the true gospel. It's a false gospel. Because the gospel has always been from Isaiah to Jesus to Paul. Repent and believe. Turn away from your life of sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people in the South who grew up here, like me, have heard that kind of a message and they've been deceived. I run into it all the time. Throughout my ministry, I've seen it over and over again. They've heard a message, a preacher or someone that they know from the church that has come along and said, listen, it's easy, man. All you need to do is just believe in Jesus. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. Do you believe in that? Yeah, you believe in that? That's all you need. You're a Christian. And I've said, great, that's wonderful. That's all I got to do. I can just keep living the way that I've always lived and just believe in Jesus. I can just add Jesus on to my life and just keep on rolling like I've always been rolling. Hey, that's a great deal. I'll take it. And they still look like the world and they still act like the world. And there's no discernible difference in their behavior or their attitudes or their actions. They still love their sin. And think they're believers think they're converted, think they're Christians. They've never truly mourned over the sinfulness of their sin. They've never looked at the cross and, and seen in the blood of Jesus the, the, the cost that their sin has required. They've never understood that Jesus died in their place, that it was their sin that caused his death. They've never understood the high penalty 
for their sin and mourned for that and been broken over their own wretchedness. They've never actually turned from their sin. They still hold on to their sin. They still make excuses for their sin. They just add a veneer of spirituality over the top of it. And listen, if that's the message of the gospel that you've heard in your life, you need to understand that that is not, in fact, the gospel. That is a false gospel that will damn your soul and will not save it. The gospel of Jesus is, is a message that says in order to be saved, in order to be converted, you must repent and believe. You must repent and turn from a life of sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ, believing by faith and embracing him by faith. It's one motion with both sides. Let me ask you that question. Have you truly repented of your sin? Have you repented? Has there come a point in your life when you understood the cost of your sin? When you understand, when you understood how offensive it is to a holy God, when you looked at your, your life and you compared it to the holiness of God and said, I am a wretched, wretched man. I am a wretched, wretched woman. I deserve God's wrath because of the way that I've lived, because of the choices that I've made, because of the sin that I revel in. Have you ever come to that realization? Have you ever looked yourself in the mirror and looked up to God and said, God, I hate the sin that I live in and I don't want any part of it for the rest of my life. Right this moment, I want to turn away from this and I want to turn toward your son Jesus and I want to walk to the best of my ability in obedience to him, entrusting my life to him, placing my faith in what he's accomplished on the cross to cover my sin that I might be forgiven and given eternal life. Have you ever done that? If you haven't this morning, then you're not a Christian. You're not in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message for you is the same message that the, the, the crowd that gathered in John's day needed to hear. Repent. Repent. It's the same message that Ezekiel preached in the Old Testament. Why will you die when you can live, repent, and turn to Christ? So John preached a message of repentance. There are two ways that people have historically tried to evade the gospel. There are two ways historically, at least, that people have tried to evade repentance. It was true in, in John's day, and it's true in our day. And John confronts both of them head on in this text. And I want to give them to you because they're pretty easy to spot in the text. One is people try to evade repentance by relying on externals to save them. And two is they, they try to evade repentance by relying on a spiritual heritage to save them. Two very common things in John's day and in ours. We see the first in verse 7. Now, after John was arrested, um, well, let's go to, um, well, the very first part here in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that's a pretty scathing sort of a way to start your sermon, isn't it? I mean, I thought about trying it this morning. I really did. I thought about just standing up here and saying, you bunch of snakes. What in the world brought you into this room today? But I wasn't sure if you'd stick around for the rest of the sermon, so I decided I better not do that. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, Matthew records this same message, and he gives us a different shade to it. He says, but when he, this is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. 
So we got the idea. Luke tells us he's saying this to the crowds, but Matthew gives us a shade. He says, particularly within this crowd are Pharisees and Sadducees in particular who have come to be baptized by John, and he's addressing them as well as the crowd. But he starts out by saying, you brood of vipers. Now, you have to recognize that John the Baptist is essentially the anti-Joel Osteen preacher, right? He is like the polar opposite. I read an interview uh, in 2016 from uh, Pastor Osteen. The interviewer said this to him, said, you've been criticized for church light, for a cotton candy message. Do you feel like you're cheating people by not telling them about the hell part or about the repentance part? To which he replied, quote, no, I really don't because it's a, it's a different approach. You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone, but I say most people are beaten down enough by life. They, they already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids, you know. We can all find reasons. So I want them to come and, and to our meetings and be lifted up and say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward, I'm doing better. And I think that motivates you to do better. Well, let me just tell you, John the Baptist is having none of that stuff right there, right? He, he, he comes right out of the chute with, you bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. By the way, that's not a compliment. The metaphor he's using is really easy to understand. If you've ever seen like a forest fire that, that begins to run through a forest, what happens is as that fire advances, you have snakes that live typically where? Like underground in holes or somewhere in trees or whatever. But when the heat and the fire starts to advance, the snakes come out of their holes and they start slithering out to, to safety, trying to get away from the, the fire that's coming. And that is the illustration that John the Baptist uses of his crowd that day. You are a bunch of snakes running from a fire. Now, John uses this for a purpose. He understands uh, very clearly, particularly the Pharisees and Sadducees, but also others in the crowd, that their motives are not pure. They're really not interested in repentance. They're not really interested in any sort of real change. What they're looking for is another quick fix. They're looking for another ritual to add on to their pile of other rituals that they continue to do that are external only in order to hope for some sort of salvation from the fire calling them snakes had another meaning as well though these same folks are going to glory in the fact that they're that they're children of Abraham that Abraham is their father when Jesus calls them a bunch of vipers he's also saying sort of secondarily no Abraham isn't your father you have a different father you're snakes who've come down from the original serpent that's your spiritual lineage he wants them to understand reality and they're living a fantasy. They're believing that they can escape the wrath of God by just coming out to John and being baptized and doing another religious ritual. That somehow adding another ritual to all the rituals that they were already doing was going to help them avoid the wrath of God. Their whole system of religion was a works-based faith. Completely external. Rituals, sacrifices, reciting prayers, keeping the law. All these external things that never touched the heart that never required repentance. They were all just a show on the outside. If you want to translate John's question of them to sort of the vernacular, it would sound something like this. Who told you you could come out here and get baptized and escape God's wrath without a change of heart? That's the question he was asking him. Who told you that? And the implied answer is, not me. Not me. That's not my message. 
A faith that's only built on externals, a faith that's only built on rituals is a faith that cannot save. And that's always been the case. Isaiah 29 verse 13, Isaiah addresses the same thing. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are where? They're far, they're far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They talk a good talk. Their hearts are far away. They need to repent. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to run into some of these same characters. And he's going to say to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside will be clean. Listen, if it wasn't bad enough that John called them snakes running from a fire, Jesus calls them filthy dishes. They look clean on the outside, but the inside is rotten. He goes on to call them whitewashed sepulchers as well. Not that that gets any better. The bottom line was always this. You can't just be right with God by keeping up the externals. Coming to faith in, 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 in Christ, becoming a Christian, making things right with God, does not revolve around doing external activities. And that's what they had believed. They believed you could just do all these things and it required no change of heart. There are a lot of people today who still believe that. There are a lot of people today who are still relying on religious externals to save them. They think that just going to church is going to make them a Christian. I ran into, on my deployment, an awful lot of Roman Catholics who believe that just going to Mass and doing penance. That's all they needed to do. That was, that was all that was required. Just doing these things, and, and things were right with God. You just go to Mass, you just do your penance, and then you just live however you want to live. It's just a faith based on external religious rituals. There are a lot of people who think today, because they were baptized at some point, that that made them a Christian. Baptism never made anybody a Christian. Without repentance and faith, Baptism just makes you a wet sinner. It's true. Some people I run into think that they're a Christian because there was a time when they were at church and, and they walked down the aisle of the church and told the pastor that they wanted to join the church. And the pastor said, okay. Or said, are you a Christian? And they said, yes. And he said, okay. And they joined the church. And so they believe they're a Christian. But there's never been any repentance in their life. Their faith is resting on a religious ritual they can't hold going to church doesn't make you a Christian reading your Bible doesn't make you a Christian praying occasionally doesn't make you a Christian just trying to do better in your life doesn't make you a Christian Christianity is a faith that is built off of repentance and faith that has always been the heart of the gospel repent, turn away from a life of sin and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ the second way people evade this by relying on religious heritage. And the way that manifested in John's day was this. He says in verse 8, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to make from these stones children for Abraham. These, 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 these religious Jews were coming out and they were saying, Listen, we're not worried about the, the, the wrath of God. We're not worried about God's judgment. We are children of Abraham. 
We are direct descendants of Abraham. We are direct recipients of the covenant. Don't you know about the covenant man? Don't you know what God promised Abraham and all of his offspring? We are they. We're good to go. They believe their Jewish heritage guaranteed them salvation. They didn't see any need for repentance. They were automatically in the kingdom of God. They were relying on Abraham's faith and Abraham's righteousness to save them. And John points out this reality of how foolish that is. You say, Abraham is your father. If you're looking to that for some sort of security in your faith, you're looking in the wrong place. God can turn these rocks into children of Abraham. He can make more kids for Abraham out of nothing. That's not going to get you anywhere. No, salvation isn't a corporate reality just because you belong to a certain heritage. Salvation is an individual matter. It's not a corporate one. Every man and every woman stands accountable before God themselves. I can't ride into the kingdom of God into somebody else's coattails. I can't get into the kingdom by somebody else's faith. I can't be made right with God by somebody else's repentance. It has to be mine. It has to be mine. These people needed to repent. They needed to renounce trusting in their heritage to save them. They needed to humble themselves. They needed to admit and confess their sin and their corruption. And they needed to turn away from all that and turn toward the Messiah who was to come. There are a lot of people today who still rely on their heritage to save them. You ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, tell me about that. Oh, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents took me to church all the time. I got this pin from perfect attendance at Sunday school at church. Yeah, I read my Bible and went to church, and, and yeah, I just came in a Christian family. I, when I was a kid, I was baptized, and I did all, all this. Or you're going to say, oh, I live in, in America. Everybody knows America, it's a Christian nation, right? You're just born a Christian because you live here. It's trusting in your heritage for salvation. It can't save you. It can't save you. Salvation only comes by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of coming from the right family. It's not a matter of going to the right church. It's a matter of having a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 8 that true repentance shows up in a changed life. You want to know what true repentance looks like? You can see it in somebody's life. He says to them, you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You, you know what? He's saying to them, you know what? I know you're not. I know you're not people who are, are genuinely saved. I know that you're not right. I know your motives are wrong. I know your faith is on a, a faulty foundation because it hasn't affected your life one bit. There's no fruit of your life that shows repentance. There's nothing in your life that shows that you've actually turned away from your sin and turned toward the Lord Jesus who is to come. What does he mean by fruits? Well, fruits are just behaviors. When a person repents of their sin and embraces the Lord Jesus Christ and they're converted, what happens is a change takes place. A change takes place, as we mentioned earlier, of mind, of behavior, and of affections. 
And what happens is by the Spirit of God, God begins to change us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to sort of shave off of our life our sinful behaviors, and he begins to build up in our lives righteous behavior. And that becomes a gradual process that plays out over time, but it becomes evident pretty early on. And, and fruit from repentance becomes evident fairly early on. When a person claims to have come to Christ and there seems to be no evidence in their life of such a change, I think John the Baptist would say, I'm not sure about that. You might want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance if that's what you say you've done. Well, the crowds were astounded by this, of course, right? They, they, they asked him, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Which is what every preacher wants people to ask at the end of their sermon, right? What do we need to do? When he gives them some practical, some practical advice, he says, well, now this starts here. How about this? If you have two tunics, share it with somebody who has none. If you have food, and why don't you share it with somebody who doesn't have any? It begins with just practical acts of righteousness. That is a, that is a sign... When Jesus asked what were the most important things, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second to that is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So some of the early fruits of repentance are loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor. And so he's giving them an example of what that looks like. What does loving your neighbor look like as a fruit of repentance? It looks like being generous. It looks like giving when you have enough and somebody doesn't have enough. It looks like being generous. It looks like sharing. It looks like caring about the needs of others. That is an example of the kind of fruit that repentance bears in a life. He's not telling them they can earn their salvation by sharing their tunic. He's just giving them an example of what repentance looks like when it plays out. There are particular groups that are there that ask the same question, right? Tax collectors, everybody hated them because they were scoundrels who stole. They were scoundrels who skimmed off of the tax. They would beat out of you whatever tax they could get, and they would give Rome what Rome required, and they could pocket the difference, and so they were getting rich off of extortion. And so Jesus tells them, you know what repentance looks like? You know what the fruit of repentance might look like? And John tells them what the fruit of repentance might look like for you? How about just don't collect any more than you're authorized to collect? Stop extorting people. Notice he doesn't tell them to change their vocation. He says just do it honorably. That's what the fruit of repentance might look like for you. And for soldiers, the same thing. Don't extort money from people by threats and false accusations. You, you don't have to do those things. Just be content with what you have. Don't use your authority to abuse people. In Acts chapter 26, verse 19, Apostle Paul is speaking to King Agrippa, and he says this, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. It's the same message that John was preaching. That repentance, when it's true and when it's right, it shows up in the life of the one who repents. Repentance bears fruit. To repent means you stop living your sinful lifestyle and you submit to Christ. It means you no longer love your sin, but you love Christ. It means you stop obeying the flesh and you start obeying Jesus.
Real quickly, we'll close with this. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Very familiar New Testament passage where Paul makes this abundantly clear what this looks like to the Galatian church. In verses 19 through 21, he defines the works of the flesh. This is the kind of things that you do when you haven't repented. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, this is what the fruit of the flesh looks like. This looks like... This is what your life looks like when you're living for the world and when you're living for yourself. It looks like a life that's marked by these kinds of fruits. And then he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes as a result of repentance and the work of the Spirit of God in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see two lists that are a distinct opposite of one another. And to repent is to turn away from living out list number one and is to pursue living out list number two. And it becomes evident in the life of a believer pretty early on. Where we used to be marked by enmity and strife and fits of anger. A beautiful thing called patience begins to develop and be seen where we used to be filled with envy of other people. A beautiful thing called contentment begins to bloom in our life. We used to be filled with sexual immorality and sensuality and impurity. All of a sudden, this beautiful thing called self-control, a fruit of repentance begins to play out in the life. That's what repentance is. It's to turn from the works of the flesh and to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And as we repent, the Spirit of God makes those things come to bear in our life, and it's evident for those who are watching us. True repentance bears fruit. Let me ask you this. Do you see the fruit of repentance in your life? This is an important question. I don't know when it was, if you're here, and you identify with Christ, that you came to identify with Christ. I don't know what you were told at the time, and I don't know what you believed. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you genuinely repented of your sin? Have you made a conscious decision to turn from living that way, repudiating that kind of life, and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in Him, pursuing obedience to Him? If you haven't done that, and there's no evidence of that in your life, don't be deceived this morning. You're not a Christian. You don't know Christ. And the wrath of God abides on you. What you need to hear this morning is the gospel, the good news that you can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life, but you must repent and turn. Do you understand that this morning? I beg you, look at your own heart and your own life this morning. Do not be deceived. Repent and turn to Christ. The wrath of God is an awful thing. 
And there's no better place to look to see the gravity of our sin and the awfulness of it than to look to the cross where Jesus died. When we look at the cross and we see the Son of God hanging there and we see a crown of thorns and we see nails through his wrist and we see his blood flowing and we see him gasping for air, what we see in that is the seriousness of sin. We see how much God hates our sin and we see the price that's due for it. I think for many of us, we live embracing sin, thinking, ah, it's no big deal. I just got away with it. Nobody knows. When we look at the cross, we understand sin is a real big deal. It required the life of the Son of God. When we look to the cross, we see Jesus coming to do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Our good works, our religious rituals could never save us. So the Son of God came and he lived a perfectly righteous life. He lived in a way that we could never live. And he gave his life on a cross where he endured the full wrath of Almighty God on our sin. Before he died, he instituted a meal with his disciples. He gathered in an upper room with them. And he understood that they were humans, and he understood that they have a propensity, like all of us, to forget the cost of sin. To forget what God does on our behalf. To get wrapped up in our own lives and to live life our own way and to forget God, in fact. And so he instituted a meal. He took the Passover meal and he transformed it into what we observe as the Lord's Supper. He gathered with his disciples and they didn't fully understand what was going on in that moment. But they would later. After he had been crucified and buried and risen, it all made sense. But Jesus gathered around that table with his disciples. And he transformed the bread and the wine of the Passover meal. He said that no longer does this bread represent the unleavened bread from the Exodus. And no longer does this wine represent the blood of goats and bulls sacrificed in the temple. But now these things represent my body and my blood given for your forgiveness. And he told them after the meal to celebrate that meal regularly till he returns so that they would never forget what was about to happen. So in like fashion this morning, it's how we conclude our service together. And gathering around the Lord's table it's a little different because we don't actually have a table. But we don't need a table. We gather with one another as the body of Christ and we approach the Lord with a distinct purpose to remember the cross, to remember the cost of our sin and the blood and body of Jesus, to celebrate the work of Christ and his saving work on the cross, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. But we were warned that when we do this, it's a very serious thing. 
And we need to pause before we take the elements and reflect on our own lives and make sure that we're remembering with a clean heart and a clean mind that we've truly repented of our sin and embraced the Lord Jesus by faith. The Lord's Supper is for true Christians, for believers who repented and believed upon the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. We wouldn't want to do that this morning. So let's pause. I want to ask you if you would just to bow your head and close your eyes. Before we take these elements and celebrate this meal together, just reflect on your own life. And first ask the question, have I truly repented of my sin and embraced the Lord Jesus? Am I a Christian? If you are a Christian this morning, it's a good opportunity just to evaluate your own heart and confess any known sin, any ways that you're living in disobedience to the Lord and seek His forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we are amazed by you. We stand in wonder that you would do for us what we could never do for ourselves that you would die for us that we might have life eternal that you the one who was perfectly righteous would die for us the unrighteous that you who knew no sin would become our sin in our place we celebrate you this morning as we take this meal we stand in awe of what you've done for us on the cross. Our hearts explode with joy and thanksgiving at who you are and what you've done. But we recognize that we too are sinners and we still have battle with the flesh and in many ways fall short of your glory. And so as we prepare to remember specifically your body and blood this morning, we ask your forgiveness fresh and anew for ways even this week that we have sinned against you for pride for sinful anger for sinful lusts for envy jealousy and all sorts of other things forgive us Lord cleanse us nail those sins to the cross Help us to truly remember you as we take this meal together. We pray it in your holy name. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room. And it tells us that he took the bread, the Passover meal, and he blessed it and he gave it to them. And he said to them, this is my body. Let's give thanks for the body of Christ. 
Lord Jesus, as we prepare to take this bread, we remember your body. Your body that was a human body, a human body like ours. And yet in your body, you absorb the, the wrath of God on our sin. We remember, Lord, a crown of thorns that was smashed into your head. We remember your beard ripped out by the roots. We remember your righteous face slapped and punched. We remember a cat of nine tails across your back and your legs. We remember a sword piercing your side. We remember nails, your hands and your feet. We remember your body struggling to breathe. In all of that, Lord, it's you paying for our sin. It's you enduring in your body what we deserved. We don't deserve the suffering that you did on our behalf but we're eternally grateful for it. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you became our sin for us. Thank you. For it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. He said, take and eat. This is my body. tells us that then he took the cup the wine of the Passover meal and he gave thanks for it let's give thanks for the blood of Christ symbolized by the juice Lord Jesus as we prepare to drink this drink we remember your blood that was poured out on the cross, streaming down the cross. Not because your blood has some magical power, but because it's a vivid image of your life that's being poured out for ours. We understand that the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for our sin. Somebody had to die. As we look at the cross and remember your blood, it was you. You died that we might live. You who did not deserve death died so that we who do not deserve life could live. Again, we marvel at your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. And we're thankful that because of your life given in our place, we can be forgiven. The slate can be washed clean. And we can spend eternity with you. We celebrate that this morning. And we are infinitely grateful for what you've done. We pray this in your holy name. 
he said to the, to the disciples who'd gathered, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Bible tells us that uh, Jesus and his disciples departed, they sang a hymn and then departed to the Mount of Olives. So as our musicians come, we're going to close our time together in the same way. I want to invite you, if you would, just to stand and prepare to, to sing a hymn together as we go out celebrating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together.